This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes teachers deserve to be celebrated and their voices elevated. Find out how you can join their movement of passionate educators in Kansas City by going to teachforamerica.org or find us on Twitter at TFA underscore KC or on Instagram at TFA KC. Everyone's been talking about Trump's first 100 days, but what's the view from the classroom? We know how he feels. I truly believe that the first 100 days of my administration has been just about the most successful in our country's history. Do our teachers agree? Plus, the National Teacher of the Year for the first time is a charter school teacher. Does it matter? And finally, white privilege. I am a black man, so (laughs) I don't know if you've ever had a black man stand in front of you and say, I'm the founder of the White Privilege Conference. Yep, it's an awkward conversation, but it's one our teachers are ready, dare I say, eager to have. Those topics plus kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. We are taping this on a very rainy weekend in Kansas City, so hope the weather's nicer where you are at when you're listening to this. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist, and I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? I teach social studies at uh, at a high school. Maria Kennedy, a new face. Welcome to the podcast. What do you teach? I teach high school history. And Princeton Grayson, you're back. What do you teach? Middle school advanced academics. So we have three secondary level teachers. All three of them are public school teachers or public charter school teachers in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. Our first episode way back when was taped a day after President Donald Trump's inauguration. And here we are. 100 days later, the new administration has passed the 100-day mark, arbitrary as it is, but it is also a time for uh, new presidents to um, typically reflect and, and maybe assess where they're at this time around with Trump is no different. Across the media spectrum, commentators and pundits have been asking in their own way, how have the first 100 days of Trump's presidency been? This is how President Trump himself assesses his presidency on his most recent weekly address. My fellow Americans, I truly believe that the first 100 days of my administration has been just about the most successful in our country's history. Most importantly, we're bringing back jobs. You ask the people of Michigan. You ask the people of Ohio. You can ask the people of Pennsylvania. See what's happening. See the car companies come roaring back in. They don't want to leave. They want to stay here. They want a piece of the action. Well, there you go. Um, Education Week recently joined in on all this, analyzing Trump's impact on public education. Here's what Ed Week says the Trump administration has done to impact education policy since January. Rolled back several Obama-era rules for the Every Student Succeeds Act, as well as overturning rules for teacher prep programs. Rescinded rules issued by the Obama administration aimed at ensuring transgender students access to school bathrooms. And most recently, Trump signed an executive order setting up a 300-day review period designed to look and do so-called federal overreach in education regulations. Edwick points out Trump's first 100 days in terms of education policy have been 
in general, much less impactful than either Barack Obama or George W. Bush's first 100 days. Obama signed the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act in his first 100, known widely as the stimulus, which included race to the top. And Bush had gotten the ball rolling legislatively on what would become known as No Child Left Behind. Maybe hard to remember, but before 9-11, Bush came into office touting himself as the education president. Uh, So what has the first 100 days of the Trump presidency look like from the perspective of the classroom? Has life for our teachers changed or is marking 100 days overblown and not that big a deal? So the first 100 days of Trump's presidency for my teachers at the table, your reflections. Gets an answer to your questions. Uh, Yes and yes. In in, in that, um, man, it's been so much fun teaching American government for the last 100 days because students are just so easily invested because they're actually interested. They, they, They see the impact. The second yes is, um, it doesn't seem like 100 days, eh, it doesn't seem like a big deal because now after the election, after the inauguration, now we're into the actual nuts and bolts of, of the administration. And I think we're, we're getting to that place where, you know, the sun does rise. We do have, every, you know, tomorrow still comes and, it, you know, we haven't blown up the world yet. So everything's, everything seems at least to be okay. Well, before I get to Princeton, Maria, I, I do want to pursue. So you, you see more energy, in, because you are a government teacher, you've seen more energy in your class around, like, what particular topics per se in the, in the um, last 100 days have you covered that have... Definitely. Um, actually, the students came to me two weeks ago when uh, the attack on Syria um, was made. Uh, they came to me. I wasn't planning on it because I'm... I have my head buried in the sand preparing our students for the state test that's coming up. And students were coming up to me saying, hey, we need to talk about what's going on in Syria. We need to talk about what's going on in Russia. And that's that's awesome. I don't think I would have ever gotten anything like that beforehand. They're just more in tune with what's going on in the world and checking up on their own social media, on their own news feeds um, and bringing those connections in class. And that, in, in a way, uh, it's ironic, but it's wonderful. Uh, Princeton, Maria, the first 100 days for you. Yeah. uh, So I, similar to Greg, um, I actually teach high school history and there has been a marked increase in investment and curiosity, especially around how historical events relate to current events. Um, My students also expressed a genuine interest in the conflicts in Syria. Um, Also, we just recently had a discussion on first wave feminism and students were able... Was this by by design or it came up organically? No, it came up organically just on where we are um, within our timeline, like within the chronology of the course. And students raised the issue of President Trump's remarks towards women um, when he was secretly taped with Billy Bush. And they made a connection and saying, well, how much progress have we really made, Miss Kennedy, if we are still seeing these things? Uh, I think for me, the first 100 days of Trump's administration regarding education, while they may not be Uh, substantive yet, have really uh, unleashed a genuine concern and fear among many of my most vulnerable students, especially students who are undocumented. Uh, And this also affects me in a way personally. I have a friend who is an undocumented immigrant. Her family comes from Mexico. And she uh, recently fell in love and got engaged and is right now needing to grapple with whether or not to become legally married prior to having an official ceremony and celebration with her family and friends or to postpone that. Uh, And she feels very deeply concerned by that. And um, while I do not have any students who identify as transgender, that uh, the rescinding of those Obama era policies uh, really is deeply troubling to me. 
I know that according to the Youth Suicide Prevention Program, half of transgender students have considered suicide and a full quarter have actually made an attempt. And to me, I really see my role as an educator as helping not just educate students, but also affirm their identities and let them know that they are safe to be who they are uh, with me and in this space. So have you felt more urgency to do that in the last 100 days? Yes, absolutely. I think building on that point, that's one of the things that I see Trump's administration this first 100 days has truly impacted education. Prior to um, Trump, under President Obama, we had had this idealistic perspective of um, culturally responsive teaching and identity work, class privilege and how that impacts the classroom, I think what Trump's administration has done is really expedited that conversation and made it a conversation of today, like whereas before it was like, oh, we'll get there and we're, we're going toward that end. But now with Trump in office and some of the very controversial choices that he's made and uh, executive orders he's um, signed has really expedited the conversation around how do we protect our most vulnerable students? How do we become more aware and more inclined, attuned to their needs um, in ways that we were not before? And I go back to this idea of fear and uncertainty. I think mm-hmm. Trump's election unmoored many people who had been at risk, but who felt a greater sense of security um, under the Obama administration. And I like that's true for me. Uh, I'm gay. I recently got married um, just last March. And I feel very unsafe and uncertain in this new world, navigating these new circumstances and this new administration. The same is true for my students. Um, We had after Trump's election, the CEO of my school offered pro bono legal services for students and their families um, for immigration services and immigration lawyers. And I think that was not something that we felt compelled to do or that we felt we needed to do during Obama's presidency. That's really interesting. So my my next question was going to be, and you might be getting a little bit towards this, Maria, have you, you, um, either you personally or you, your schools, felt more politicized or a need to be more politicized in the last 100 days. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) Jinx. I mean, (laughs) I haven't heard that in years. (laughs) Um, I mean, in full transparency, all three of you teach in in schools that have student bodies that are uh, majority students of color, um, majority students that come from low-income backgrounds. So that is your all backgrounds as well. Uh, Greg, you were going to say something. Yeah, that our focus is is very social justice oriented. And it was before the election. It was before even the campaign started. And I think now it's just driven that point home that this is absolutely what we need to focus on. This is the, focusing in on, on social equity, uh, on social justice. It's imperative now more so than ever. When you say that, and I'm very intrigued by that notion because I hear this a lot now, especially in our current environment. We're very social justice focused. What does that mean and what does it look like in your school? So when we look at curriculum, um, we're looking at at topics that go towards that, toward bridging that gap. Um, For instance, I just saw some freshman presentations on displacement, on displacement of various groups just around the world and and Mm. what causes displacement. Um, for my own take you know, on, on American government, looking at the government through different perspectives, through different lenses. So it's not just through one lens. Princeton, you, you ask with a hint of frustration in your voice as, as, if, <laughs> as, well, if, as if maybe, no, I mean, as if, you know, you, it, it took the election of, of Donald Trump to spark maybe some of those conversations in schools, not necessarily Greg's school, but I mean, right. in, in schools in general. I mean, I think I'm just in a space where Education has been touted as the social justice movement of our time and like or the civil rights movement of our time. I think 
I want us to get to a place where they're not just buzzwords and that that we're mm-hmm. actually putting action behind them. I think a lot of schools say that to sound like they're progressive and sound like they're actually moving to a certain place, but they're not actually doing any work to get there. But as long as they can say they put on a, a T-shirt, they put it on a, a um, letterhead that we're a social justice oriented school, but I'm not really seeing the effects of that, I guess. So for, for people at the table, has the election of Donald Trump made that? You know, this this push for, quote, social justice more authentic in your eyes? It certainly increased the urgency, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, I, I think the community feels around that. Um, I know that my students, I'm very blessed to work with students who, I think similar to Greg's, have always had a bent, a bent towards social justice and a true thirst for knowledge around equity um, and our history, all of it, even the um, the darkest chapters. But there is this palpable sense of urgency and conversations have shifted. Topics have gone from the theoretical to the practical. So not just what is our history around this, but now really what are we going to do today, tomorrow, next week in the future to preserve equity in this country? I think the other – oh, go for it, Greg. Well, there is a sense of urgency, but I think this might be to your point, Princeton, that – the biggest problem we have is that we are we are so siloed mm-hmm. that okay it, it's great that we have these wonderful projects that we are focusing in on on social justice but until we bring other people to the table who are not like us who are not from the inner city um, we're not going to get anywhere right I mean I think that's that's kind of the, the, the that's catch, a, right? you actually took the words that's exactly who my other frustration is that when you look at the schools that are quote unquote social justice they're often schools of color. Why is it always incumbent on the people of color, the oppressed, to overcome their oppression and not the people who are actually doing the oppressing? And so I think that until I see white schools, private schools talking about being social justice oriented and actually doing work behind that, then it just becomes another tagline that we're putting the burden on the oppressed to overcome the system that is designed against them. Oh, still a lot of progress to make. (laughs) Quite. Um, Our podcast today is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. You can make an immediate impact on that mission in Kansas City. To find out how, visit teachforamerica.org or find them on Twitter at TFA underscore KC or on Instagram at TFA KC. Well, we're not done talking about Donald Trump. Uh, He had another education-related presidential duty recently, recognizing the 2017 Teachers of the Year from all the states, territories, and the District of Columbia, 55 in all. The group gathered in the Oval Office with President Trump, along with First Lady Melania Trump, Vice President Mike Pence, and his wife. And there, Trump made some brief remarks, as recorded by England's The Daily Mail. These are the, the greatest there are. Nobody does. So I want to congratulate you all. It's amazing. Each of you has dedicated yourself to inspiring young minds and to putting our children on a path to happiness and success. Lots of success. Trump went on to recognize the National Teacher of the Year, which we will talk about more specifically in a bit, Sidney Chafee of Massachusetts. The Washington Post also reported uh, that in a somewhat awkward moment, Trump asked the teachers to sing happy birthday to Melania Trump. It was her birthday, after all. And then, according to the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the Minnesota Teacher of the Year, Abdul Wright, asked the president if the group could join him in singing Lift Every Voice and Sing, often referred to as the Black National Anthem. And they did, with Trump thanking them afterwards. This all begs the question, if you were given an Oval Office audience with President Trump as a teacher... Even if it was just for one minute, what would you do? What would you say? You have one minute with President Trump. Go. 
I would tell President Trump or remind him that diversity is our strength, that we as a nation are most successful when everyone is invited to the table, when everyone has a voice, and when everyone matters and feels safe. And I would really impress upon him the point that his words matter and that his words have the power to heal or the power to hurt. And too often, his words hurt real people. They hurt my students. They hurt me. Um, and it matters. And as president, he is called to a higher standard. Princeton, you have one minute in the Oval Office. <laughs> what do you do? Um, take a picture. Lots of selfies. No. <laughs> um, I don't know what I would say to, to Trump. I feel like one minute is not enough time to, to articulate as eloquently as Maria just did. Um, because I feel like it, it has to be a conversation. Um, because Trump is... I don't know if there's any real reasoning with him. So I may just ask questions. Like, what does he want his legacy to be? It's like I it's something I'm wondering because I don't know if he. Yeah, I just don't know. I, I, I would be at a loss for words. Really? Yeah, that's hard. So, to it imagine. is. That's it hard is. to imagine. Why? Greg yeah. Brenner, you have one minute in the Oval Office. Man, I, I wish I was in a position of luxury like the New England Patriots to be able to say, yeah, maybe not this year. I won't go this year. You know, maybe like in years past, oh, yeah. but not now. Yeah, we'll, we'll uh, win it again it, next year. Yeah, right. right. Um, no, I think my one minute, I'd probably just tell them, I really love this country. Uh, here's a copy of the Declaration and the Constitution. Please read it. And please, for God's sake, stop tweeting. <laughs> well, getting back to the National Teacher of the Year, Sydney Chafee of Massachusetts, I touched upon it just a minute ago. She was recognized at the Oval Office ceremony, but again, I should say the Washington Post noted in past years it has been customary to have the National Teacher of the Year make an address. This did not happen this year, though we have an inkling of what Chafee might have said. She's the first charter school teacher to ever win the honor. She teaches ninth grade humanities at Codman Academy Charter Public School in Boston. She has said in the past that teachers need to, quote, arm their students to fight for justice. In a profile of Chafee, WBUR reports Chafee is known around her school for teaching units on racial apartheid in South Africa and the Haitian Revolution. Her National Teacher of the Year profile put out by the Council of Chief State School Officers says, quote, Sydney is looking forward the next year to advocating for all teachers to take risks on behalf of their students and giving a voice to the issues that affect her students. So National Teachers of the Year, we should say, are kind of like Miss America, that they, the year after they win, they travel around the country talking with teachers, giving speeches, essentially being an ambassador for the profession. So if you were given that kind of platform, if you were able to, to travel around and speak um, about a particular issue in education, what would be your priorities? What would you want to talk about? My, my priority would definitely be around equity. I think it's a large topic that allows for a, a multitude of conversations. And I think about equity, I think about it, it, it requires some work on identity. It requires work on white privilege. It requires work on socioeconomic um, disparity. So I feel like that would be something that I would champion because it just opens the door to so many other issues that are plaguing our system. Yeah, Greg and Maria, what would be your platforms? I think teacher empowerment, um, just from a professional standpoint, just trying to upgrade the, the profession, um, give it more the status that it does deserve in, in our country, um, where it really, it really doesn't. We get, we get thrown down quite a bit. And um, we have so many problems in, in the profession where, where teachers leave after just a few years and it's such a high turnover rate. But trying to work on, on getting trust with the community um, to do our jobs, to do our jobs well, because the majority of teachers are hardworking, and if you trust them, they will do a wonderful job. Yeah. 
Maria, what would be your platform? Princeton took the words right out of my mouth. Um, I absolutely agree that I think like the first point of order would be around issues of equity, privilege, and identity. Um, since my original one was already taken, I think the second thing I would focus on would be changing the conversation around professional development. Mm. I actually really mm. think that too often um, teachers are developed in ways that are not aligned to best practice. So I would advocate for research into what are those best practices and then also adopting a method where teachers actually get at bats with whatever it is they're learning. So if, for example, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So in the same way that, you know, the Kansas City Royals go to batting practice and they get feedback on their practice so that when they actually go to a game. Maybe not this year. (laughs) Well, you know, one can dream. A few years ago, certainly. Um, in the same way that the Royals get batting practice and get feedback from their coach, and then uh, that improves their actual performance in a game when it matters. I think for teachers, one of the things that we need to do better as a profession, and one way to elevate the profession, as Greg said, is to get at bats when we are learning a new skill. So, for example, a classroom management skill. Mm -hmm practicing it with your peers and coaches, getting feedback on it, and then trying it out in the classroom, knowing that that practice is actually going to enhance your rap- your true performance. Um, I mean, that reminds me, Edwig just had this thing this past week, hashtag worst PD, hashtag best mm-hmm. PD. They asked teachers to, to tweet out their worst and best PD experiences. So that ma- makes me think of that. The worst PD ones were far more entertaining than the best oh, PD sure. ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to read more about um, the, the ceremony um, in the Oval Office for the Teachers of the Year, um, you can go to our website and see a link to that. The term white privilege was for a long time a term you might have heard only In academic discussions in a college classroom, not in the mainstream media, the term we should say has hit a new level of cultural significance recently since the election of Donald Trump, who was often accused of his connections to white nationalist organizations. But to be clear, white privilege is very different from white nationalism, and defining white privilege can often be slippery. Peggy McIntosh coined the term in her 1989 paper, White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. Here's how McIntosh defines white privilege. Quote, privilege exists when one group has something of value that is denied to others simply because of the groups they belong to. Rather than because of anything they've done or failed to do, access to privilege doesn't determine one's outcomes, but it is definitely an asset that makes it more likely that whatever talent, ability, and aspirations a person with privilege has will result in something positive for them, unquote. Some examples of white privilege in action, McIntosh goes on to say, I can, if I wish, arrange to be in the company of people of my race most of the time. I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. I can turn on the television or open to the front page of the paper and see people of my race widely represented. I can be sure that my children will be given curricular materials that testify to the existence of their race. White privilege is a touchy subject in education as well. There was a recent example of a Chicago area school that tried to hold a seminar about white privilege and had to cancel it because of an angry backlash from parents. Still, the topic is one that at least needs to be discussed. Why? Statistical inevitability. The vast majority of teachers in America are still white, though they are teaching a national student body that is increasingly black and brown and at some point in our lifetimes is likely to become majority-minority. So though it's a difficult subject, let's try to talk about it. Uh, Again, we've noted it already. The teachers here today should be said all teach in schools where the student bodies are composed, mostly of students of color. Um, So uh, this might affect your students, but I I guess let me just first ask, um, how does white privilege um, affect or manifest itself in your work? Because I know it does. 
Who's going to go first on this one? <laughs> the awkward silence. This, this is tough. I'm, so, yes, it definitely obviously manifests in our work. I think from an educational lens, from multiple perspectives, I, the disparities in discipline, um, the disparities in rigorous opportunities, academic opportunities. Between students of different races. Right, between students of different races, between students of different social classes, um, in a variety of ways. I think, to me, the overarching impact of white privilege is that our curriculum, our system is designed for the protection of white privilege, for the perpetuation of white privilege. Um, so even in schools of color, with leaders of color, with teachers of color, the system still is designed for white privilege to exist and be so and, 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 and get precise. So what do you mean by the, the system still exists to perpetuate white privilege? So the, the way that so when we think about discipline, what we value as a disciplined scholar is often reflective of white norms. Um, when we think about curriculum, that our histories particularly is still very centered on um, white domination and, and white importance and, and white significance. We think about literature, we look at the classics are all often white authors. Um, and so the way that we are instructing our kids oftentimes does not reflect who they are in the cultures and does not speak to an importance of their, their heritage. While at the same time, that's like system, systemically, there are always those islands and those isolated moments where a teacher is very close to the response and they are very intentional about showing those reflections of students in their um, work. However, they do not do that as a system because the curriculum is still not designed that way. Yeah. So, Greg and Maria, how do, how, does, how do you encounter examples of white privilege in your I, work? I actually see that on the, on the soccer field. Um, since I, I, I help coach uh, the, our boys' soccer team, and at first, I, I resisted this 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 notion because we'd go out and and, and play say a, a white school from from the suburbs, and almost always the amount of yellow cards given um, there, there was a huge discrepancy between the yellow cards given to our team versus the the, the white school um, quote unquote, and and first you know I, I would say well you know they were better we were. Um, we're, we're just not quite as good. And so, of course, we resort to fouling. And so there's, there's more fouls. But I've seen this year in and year out where if you look at who the refs are, they're never people of color. And I think the refs just have this expectation that, hey, there's this inner city school that's that brown skin. They're going to show up and it's, they're going to play dirty. And you just see that they start calling fouls right off the bat. Whereas the the other team, they may commit a foul, but they just get they just get a war a verbal warning, not the yellow card. That's just one small example of that, and I've and I've seen that time and time again. And and it makes me at first I resisted that. It's like no, the refs they're 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 trying to call it fair. They're not, but no man. You said I you think, resisted it at first, but it yeah. it sounds like you've. Uh, well, I mean, what changed in your thinking about what was what was the cause of that in, it, in your part, mind? Part of it is just training. Part of it is is a colleague just shifting my attention. It's like, no, you you need to see this from this perspective and just you know check your own check your own privilege at the door. And 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 he was right because I was coming from growing up in a suburban school um, where those were the norms that I adopted, and then trying to apply that in in the inner city school I teach at. I realized, man, I was bringing a lot of assumptions and expectations of students that were really quite unfair because of they were the expectations that I grew up with in a very different setting than my students. And it took quite a number of years for me to realize that. Maria? 
Yeah, Greg, I really appreciate your vulnerability. And I think in a nutshell, what you just modeled is exactly what needs to be happening. Uh, Reflection around our own identities and uh, self-constructs and self-concepts. Last year, um, in the summer, when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile and other uh, black men were killed through police shootings, um, as that was going on, the CEO of my school sent out an email to the staff and said, uh, you may not be here in Kansas City uh, because it is the summer, but if you are here, please come to this impromptu emergency meeting because what is happening in this country is not okay and we need to do something about it. The staff came together for that meeting, processed together, and one of the action steps that came out of that meeting was identifying uh, identity and privilege and cultural competency as a core priority for us this year and moving forward. And while my school is not perfect and we have a long way to go in many respects, including cultural competency, um, the outcomes of that conversation have had a ripple effect in things that I see. So, for example, my students every morning begin their day with a course called College Seminar, which focuses on developing non-cognitive skills uh, and college persistence skills, because we know that just being smart is actually not good enough um, to get our kids to and through college. And this entire quarter, we've been focusing on identity and privilege. So we've discussed things such as insider versus outsider status. We've looked at white privilege and what that buys people, just as Peggy McIntosh was saying. We've looked at or read Du Bois' uh, double consciousness. We just finished reading excerpts from Claude Steele's Whistling Vivaldi. Mm -hmm. And through those conversations, they have been just as enriching for teachers and adults as they have for students. That is what we need to be engaging in. We need to have more critical, crucial, courageous conversations about identity and the intersection intersections between identity, privilege, race, sexuality, religion. So in Princeton, it seems like he wants to say something, but I mean, just to follow up. So what you said that one of the things you covered in this college seminar unit or class was was white privilege. So. How did that come up and what was the conversation like between staff and students? Well, interestingly enough, in the cohort that I teach, I co-teach it with another um, teacher. Both of the teachers are white. All of the students in that cohort are students of color. And through those conversations, one of the things that has really resonated with me is the power of our personal relationships. And students have been able to name their own biases about races that are not their own, including white, but also recognizing that personal relationship really breaks down those barriers. Having conversations with real people transcends the stereotype and crumbles it. And I think like... To be specific, what were were some stereotypes that your students had of white people? um, I've had students tell me before that all white people like Starbucks. So I, that's, a, that's a silly one, but something that they had said, um, that white people are educated or more affluent. Um, and I was able to talk with them about my experience in Kentucky. I am a native Kentuckian, bluegrass, woo. And um, in my state, outside of Louisville and Lexington, poverty is not black or brown. It is white. And it's in the coal mines of Appalachia. It's in western Kentucky. And that was not something that they had ever considered, some of them. I got feedback later from some of them saying, wow, I had never considered that. That was not in the college seminar course. That was actually in history. But the point stands that, like, that was not schema that many of them had. And because I was able to share that, their horizons were broadened. Hmm. 
Yeah. Princeton, you were going to say something. One of the things I find as a black male teacher that I feel part of this white privilege is that teachers have an option to opt out. Like when I look at my kids, when I'm teaching my students, they to me are a reflection of who I am. They are my community. They are my future doctors and lawyers and that sort of thing. And so I feel... Uh, an obligation to my students that I feel like a lot of our white teachers don't necessarily feel that they can leave. It's just a job. They leave that school building, they go live in their suburban area and they interact with their very um, white family or white uh, culture and community. And so they have opportunity to opt out, which then leads to this lowering the bar and like, oh, I'm only going to do just enough so that, oh, these kids can't do like the mindsets they bring because they're able to opt out of the existence of our students sometimes is what I feel like is another privilege that they have that I don't have that causes a lot of frustration. So when I start to try to name that and have conversations around that, um, in a very professional way, um, or at least what I would consider to be professional, um, that it needs to, it, it just le- it leads to a lot of frustrations because not everyone's always ready to have the types of conversation that Maria and Greg are to have those reflections and get that feedback that is required. But it is definitely something that if we're really talking about being social justice oriented and being equity oriented, then we have to begin to engage in those conversations more readily. Right. I mean, not all white people are woke and not even all white people who teach in inner cities. Well, and not all not all people of color are either, because, again, there's there's intersectionality and that there's margins within the margins. And I think that that's part of the so people of color can also benefit from engaging in these conversations as well. So, I mean, what 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 do you do from here? Right. So this, this conversation about white privilege is now in the ether. It's now in the cultural zeitgeist, whether it be because of the election of Donald Trump or not, or things like Dear White People on Netflix. It's now out there. It's more of a cultural conversation than it has been um, in any recent time, at least. Uh, Where do you go from here as as teachers, as schools? I think for me, it's like owning my own locus of control and like making sure that I am being reflective enough, seeking feedback on multiple lenses of equity and not just a racial piece. As a black man, it's easy to, to fall into race as my uh, lens when I think about equity, but also making sure that I'm I'm giving due diligence to other areas of marginalization and potential oppression as well, and then encouraging others to engage in the conversation. I would say learn as much and as often as you can about people and cultures from all over the world. Additionally, I would, in terms of action, really encourage our schools to take a look at the systems, policies, and practices that Mm -hmm. they have in place and view them from a culturally responsive lens. What do you mean by that? So, for example, I'll give you an example. One thing that I'm acutely aware of because of my background in special education is how black, particularly boys, but black students are at much, are placed on IEPs Mm -hmm. and referred at much higher rates than white students. And at my school... That is something that our special ed director is keenly aware of. And so and if a student, if you refer a student, um, it goes through a very rigorous process. One of the pieces to the process is an understanding that this is uh, pervasive within our nation and a consideration of other strategies that have been tried and like how um, how certain are we or, or how strong is our suspicion that this student's learning difficulties are a result of a disability? I think to that point, and we have to get to a place where as a system we've made a choice to reverse the symptoms. And, and I think that 
when we talk about this, we have a lot of people who are in um, islands or in isolation doing some really great work in their classroom, in their school buildings. But I don't know of a system readily that has made a conscientious choice to shift things how, uh, of how they're working systematically. We see a lot of people say, oh, we have black principals, we have black teachers, we have this initiative to get more blacks or more people of color in front of our kids, which is a great step, but it can't be that. It can't be the only step because we what we see is that they people of color can still perpetuate white privilege and still perpetuate white supremacy. And it's done through the system itself. And so until the system is making choices like Maria just outlined of being more culturally responsive, of being more inclusive on the front end and not as a afterthought, then we can get to a place where we can actually start seeing changes. I think to add on to that, things like suspension rates. I think just like having schools take a hard look at their own data. Uh, from from a lens of cultural responsivity and race and saying, okay, what are our suspension rates? What is the breakdown? Um, why do we think that is? Are we satisfied with that? What can we do about it? Um, is, I think, another area. That I really think, brings to- and, and we want to definitely bring Greg into the conversation too, but like even to that point, we think about like, Right now, there's a large push for reintegrating schools in America that we realize that after 50 years after Brown versus Board, we did not do our jobs. At that same time, even in the most integrated schools, there are still significant academic gaps between people of color and their white students and thinking to do more reflection around what is causing these gaps. So even when you think the system is shifting for the betterment of people of color, we still see significant gaps. And I think that's part of the reflection that if as a system is choosing to change those outcomes, we have to have more nuanced conversations. Yeah, Greg, final word. Yeah, I just want to keep <laughs> the conversation going. This is this is really good, but I want the conversation to, to get out of the inner city. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, let, let's bring other people um, to the table that normally don't talk about it, um, that wouldn't hear it otherwise. And I think that's that's the goal and that's the challenge. Is too, that possible? Because, yeah, is that, is that possible? How can we do that? I, that You're posing the question. question, not as I'm posing the question. Yeah, I, I really don't know. <laughs> uh, well, if you would like to read or at least read a, a synopsis of Peggy McIntosh's seminal article, White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, you can find a link to that at our Website. We end each episode with a segment we call Kids These Days. Our teachers tell us about the things trending among their students over the past week. It's a window into the sometimes strange world of teachers. So each week we ask, what are your kids into these days? Princeton. What are your kids into these days? So it is prom season here in Kansas City. As we know, um, yes. Listen, listen last week, David talked yeah. about that as well. Yeah. But he's a high school teacher. You're not, right. You're so I'm not. So it's not prom season for my students particularly, but it is for their friends, older siblings and such. And so right now there is a lot of use of the word fleek, being on fleek for the men who are dressed to the nines. And then um, for the women, they are all slaying. So that's they're looking at pictures on their timeline and on Facebook and um Snapping to other each other, all these fleekage and slaying. Right, fleekage, fleekage and slaying. And we should say those aren't new terms. They are not I mean, new. I they, know those. Yes, they yeah. they've been around for a while now, but they're in heavy rotation. Right and now. and they're looking at older siblings. Older friends. siblings. They're looking. I mean, people they don't know. It's just right now. There's like a trend of particularly in the African American community community around. Um, Prom dresses that are of African-centered design, so like using kente cloth and sort of thing. There was a viral dress, a dress that went viral where she, she did a Black Lives Matter. Well, it was not a Black Lives Matter dress, but she had the images of many of the slain black uh, men and women from police officer shootings um, on her dress, and it caused it to go viral. So those are the type of things that my students yeah. are kind of talking cool. about. Cool. Uh, Maria, what are your kids into these days? 
Similar to Princeton's uh, on slang, my students love to say, I'm weak or I'm dead, especially uh, if it means like if something is really, really funny. Usually that revolves around me making a pun or trying to dance. I get a lot of feedback on my dancing. Um, None of it really very good. And so when that sort of thing happens, they will start laughing and just say, oh, I'm weak. And I just want to tell them. I love you. You are beautiful, precious, bold, and courageous. But that word does not mean what you think it means. <laughs> do you know where this comes from? Oh, I'm weak. I do not. No. It um, is quite hilarious that when they use it. Oh, they, they're, like, yeah. they're not just weak once. It's like continual. I'm weak. No, right. I am um, weak. That's right. Exactly. I'm, I'm dead. But now I'm like, I'm weak because you're weak. Right. So does so. that make me dead or what's it? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> So is 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 dead an elevation of weak? It's yes. it's a little bit more fun. Yes. It's a little bit funnier. Yeah, if, if you're dead, dead, that was really uh, hilarious. You killed me. <laughs> yeah, uh, Greg, what are your kids into these days? Graduation is coming up. Uh, seniors are stressed out, and I imagine they're stressed out throughout the country, not just uh, not just in my school or in Kansas City. So a shout out to all the seniors out there. Uh, keep it going. Uh, you're almost to the to the end, guys. Um, you know, you, you see you see the finish line. Now it's just who's got the kicks to make it. Are you talking to yourself or your kids? <laughs> <laughs> wow, good point. Um, good, good, good point. And you, and Can't you, it be both? Yeah. <laughs> um, in your school, I, I think. It, it it requires some sort of community service, right? So there, there's been a little bit of procrastination. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Like every every year, we have those those seniors that are are furiously looking around for any community service um, opportunities that they can that they, they can do because they need to do 25 hours. And they've had four. The worst part is they've had four years to do it. Well, that will do it for this episode of No Wrong Answers. Uh, we should say Teach for America, Kansas City is the underwriter of this podcast. No Wrong Answers does retain total editorial control and. What our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of their schools and districts. We will have our weekly extra credit segment drop on Thursday. We are changing things up slightly. So these episodes, full episodes, will drop on Tuesdays. Extra credits now on Thursdays as opposed to Mondays and Wednesdays. Look for that in your feed coming up this week. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And once you find us, subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today. Subscribe, leave a review, keep the conversation going. Thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Maria Kennedy, Princeton Grayson. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. I'm Kyle Palmer, and remember kids, be nice to your teachers.